Genesis 21 today, but um, I sort of got off in the last hour a little bit, and I would like to penalize you similarly <laughs> as I did them. And I will endeavor, then this class ends at 1045, but we're supposed to finish by 1030, which I didn't do. I, I didn't do it all. Uh, in the last hour. I told folks I would promise you that next week we'll get out earlier, but I probably won't keep that promise either. So, um, But we'll try to give you a chance so you can circulate and look at the wonderful tables out there and envision yourself maybe serving in one of those capacities. So Genesis chapter 1, which follows the very simple and easy text uh, that the Lord in his sovereignty gave Brother Chuck to teach Last week, I'm left with a complicated and difficult text. It's just the way it is. So Genesis 21, here we are. Are you ready? Then, so that's a time indicator, meaning it follows from what has preceded. Then the Lord took note of Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did for Sarah as he had promised. As he had said, as he had promised. What does that tell you about God? He does what he says. Folks, that's important, especially in a day when few others are doing what they say. It's very hard to trust in words which are expressed today in many corners of our society. People make promises they Cannot keep. But this is never true of God. I love these words. As he had said, as he had promised. You can count on it. He, he doesn't lie. He keeps his word. But here's the rub. God makes promises, but doesn't tell us specifically when he intends to fulfill what he has promised. So this gets to us. Let's think about it. Because we have a need for rather immediate gratification. So if God has promised something, we would prefer it be delivered immediately. That's oftentimes not the way God works. For instance, this magnificent promise made to Sarah and Abraham was made way back in Genesis chapter 17, verse 16. I'll read it to you. God said, I will bless her. I will bless Sarah. And indeed, I will give you, Abraham, a son by her. Then I will bless her, and she shall be a mother of nations. Kings of peoples will come from her. What a grand promise. But it was made 25 years before its fulfillment here in Genesis chapter 21. Think about it. A lady advanced in years, a man advanced in years. They had been given promises that the nations would be blessed by them, but they have... Not even one child. How could they be thinking about nations and seed and descendants when there isn't even one child to lay hold of? They're advanced in years. They get a promise. They rejoice. Twenty-five years later, uh, God is going to fulfill the promise. So it's always going to be as he has said and as he had promised, but I'm afraid we have to leave the timing of the fulfillment of his promises up to him. Now, when you read the Bible and see its promises, could I offer you something that may be of help? Uh, There are different categories of promises. I I just want to offer two. Some promises uh, come with a condition, meaning there will not be the fulfillment of the promise unless the one to whom the promise is made fulfills a certain condition. Those would be promises sort of couched in these terms. God would say, I will, but then he would say, if you will. So that's a promise contingent on something we do. The Bible is filled with many, many conditional promises. So you don't want to just latch on to it as if it's automatic. Some require your 
responsibility. You have to responsibly meet a condition in order to receive the fulfillment of the promise, the conditional promise. The other category would be, what do you think it would be? Unconditional. Exactly. An unconditional promise means just what it says. It's a promise made without any condition. No prerequisite. Nothing has to be done. No standard has to be met by the one to whom God makes the promise. It's without a condition. So if a conditional promise is sort of couched in these terms, I will, if you will, then an unconditional promise is just I will. So it's really, really important to distinguish between the two. For instance, um, God's promise here to Abraham and Sarah is an unconditional promise. He simply, from our perspective, out of the blue, said, you will bear a child. He even told them what the child's name should be. You shall name the child Isaac. And you can you can search the scriptures. You're not going to find any contingency Abraham and uh, uh, Sarah needed to meet in order to receive the promise. It's an unconditional promise. In fact, Abraham was rather imperfect. Don't you agree? In the last chapter, Genesis 20, you saw this. Remember how he lied about his wife being his sister and... He was rebuked even by Abimelech, a Philistine king. Someone at this point not part of the covenant rebuked Abraham. So he was kind of an imperfect guy. And so though his obedience was far from perfect, uh, God simply fulfilled the promise based on his faithfulness to it, and it was without condition. Can you, can you see what I'm getting at? So I want to ask you a question. Your salvation promised you by God. What category of promise would you put that in? Conditional or unconditional? If you said unconditional, you're probably someone who's sleeping a little better at night than others. If you know your salvation uh, began with and will finish by the grace of God, you know, there's no condition you had. God, God, God didn't put, God didn't say if you clean up your act, if you attend church, if you get baptized, if you memorize the Bible in its original language, if you give money, these are all good things, but he didn't say anything like that, did he? It's an unconditional promise based upon the merits of, of this. In other words, now you may say, no, but there is a condition. I had to accept Christ. But don't, don't give yourself too much credit for that. Even your ability to behold Christ and sense a need for him was given as a gift by God. Even that. You see what I mean? So you came, as did I, with an empty hand. God put something in it. <laughs> and therefore, we can't really brag about it. and We didn't do anything to earn it. It's without condition. Now, here's the beauty of it. Maureen Chuck is right there if you want to sit with him. And, but you don't have to. Seriously, Maureen, we would not hold this against you. In, in fact, we would respect you and perfectly understand. <clears throat> One of the Schneiders is really, really nice. <laughs> they compliment each other. One's nice, one's not. You know what I mean? It's a compliment. So our salvation is unconditional, and that is the basis of our some people call it eternal security or assurance of salvation. Why did God put it that way? Because if there was any condition for us to meet, we'd probably violate it and have a very up and down spiritual experience. Today I'm saved. Tomorrow I may not, I may not be saved. You see, it would be this kind of thing. But God wants us to be safe and secure and enveloped by his gracious, loving arms. So it's an unconditional promise. However... What about the enjoyment of the full benefits of your salvation? Would that be in the category of a conditional or an unconditional promise? What do you think? Conditional. Uh, so, um, a saved person is saved by God's grace through faith, you know, unconditionally. But some of the most miserable people on earth are not unsaved people. 
They're saved people who are disobeying the Savior. Why? Because disobedience fails to meet the condition of having God's Spirit in us give us love, joy, peace, goodness, kindness, self-control. So the fruit of the Spirit in us can really be compromised contingent on our obedience or disobedience. So you read in the Bible people praying like this, please God, restore to me the joy of my salvation. Not my salvation, but the joy of my salvation. It's possible to be a fully redeemed individual who's lost the joy thereof. That's one of the consequences of sin. So you see, possession of salvation, unconditional. The experience of the blessings of salvation, conditional. So, this is where in the last class I just deviated like crazy. I'm a deviant. And so... I will be a deviant again today. Um, You've been reading about the Middle East, perhaps, listening to news. So have I. Um, (coughs) The news can be helpful and also uh, not so helpful. Accurate, not so accurate. So I love to make recourse to the Bible in trying to make sense of the complexities of the day in which we live. This helps me. Please correct me if I'm being overly simplistic. Israel in the land, which we call Israel, the Jews in the land, I had to figure out, are they there based on a conditional promise or an unconditional promise. Ah, thanks for answering before I even had a chance. But, I mean, you're right. It's the right answer. And tell you why this is so important. If we find fault with Israel today, we, we, we're holding Israel responsible for governmental, military, moral failures, let's say. I might be able to argue that case with you But that's not the issue, because even if you're right, it has nothing to do with addressing the basis upon which Israel has a right to the land. If Israel's right to the land was based upon her proper behavior, morality, ethics, righteousness, then you could make a strong case that we should not support Israel's right to the land for You could give evidence that they have forfeited it through disobedience. I'm not sure I would argue with you about that. But if Israel's right to the land is based on no condition, just God's sovereign divine choice and decision to give them the land, then I could argue with you. So you have to back up to Genesis chapter 12 to find out the first land promise given to Israel. And if you look at Genesis chapter 12, just the first few verses, I defy you to show me this construction. I will give you the land if you will. And then fill in the blank. You don't see it. See, that would be a conditional promise. All that you find in Genesis 12, and it's ratified Many times, Genesis 15, Genesis 17, on and on and on. All you find is, I will give you this land. To me, that settles things. So a people group that doesn't recognize Israel's right to exist in the land, I know already from a biblical point of view, I must dismiss their argument. Because Israel's I don't want to say right. The decision for Israel to have the land was God's based upon the exercise of his sovereign will. Why did he do it? Well, I'm not sure of this. You'll have to wait to ask him as I will as well. I know he chose a particular people group from whom would come a particular Messiah to offer salvation for no one in particular, but for anyone who calls on his name. And I know he could have done this with Italians or 
uh, French or Puerto Rican people or anybody. Why Jews? This I don't know. It could very well be because we're the most unlikely. Why is that? Well, because we've been entrusted as a people group with more spiritual privilege than any other people group on earth. What did we do with it? We squandered it. There is, therefore, no people group on earth through whom God can more effectively demonstrate his grace than through my people. So I know we didn't get the land because of virtue. I know it's not because we're bigger or more numerous than any group. It says in Deuteronomy, on the contrary, you're smaller and weaker. So this could be the reason why God chose the Jews. I'm telling you, we're the most unlikely recipients. But be that as it may, I don't think you could argue with the fact that God chose to give this piece of real estate to this particular people group. You can only argue it if you have a very low view of Scripture. Now, if Israel's right to the land is without condition, then when anyone fails to support Israel's right to the land, they're really operating at cross-purposes with God himself. If Israel's right to the land is unconditional, are there some conditions she has failed to meet? Tons. My people, we've turned against our own Messiah. As a result, we have eyes that see not, ears that hear not. We're in a spiritual stupor. Down to this very day, we have walked away from our own Messiah. Surely we have failed to meet a number of the conditions he has for us. He tells us in Deuteronomy, through Moses, I'm going to lay out for you the blessings of obedience and the cursings of disobedience. Surely we've not obeyed. Surely we've not met the conditions. So what has happened? Though Israel has an unconditional right to the land, her enjoyment of her time in the land is very much contingent on her obedience. Do you think Israel is enjoying her time in the land? I just spoke to our key contact in Israel this morning. I speak to him just about every day. It's a horrific situation. When we go in September, Lord willing, we'll have an opportunity, I think, just to buddy up with some of the kids on a kibbutz who have been moved out because they're in direct range of rocket fires. You think of little kids, rockets, loud noises going off. They get traumatized. and We just want to see if we can love on these kids a little bit. Israel's right to the land is without condition. Israel's enjoyment of the land is very much contingent on her obedience because she has disobeyed God. She has never had full enjoyment of the land to its full extent and unobstructed. Never. What's happening today with Hamas and Israel is kind of a new form of upheaval, but there's been upheaval, has there not, since the time of Genesis, for crying out loud. Jerusalem means city of peace, Yerushalom, Yerushalayim. And yet there has been less peace in Jerusalem than any other major city in the entire world throughout human history. It's an evidence of the fact that though title deed to the land is given to Israel without condition, her enjoyment of the land is very much contingent on her obedience. It offers quite a parallel to our situation. I'll tell you why. Israel's place of promise was given to her without condition. So to ours. That's what you said. Our place of promise, heaven, the consummation of our salvation. You told me rightly that it's based, it, uh, uh, that there's no condition. But then you said, but the joy of our salvation is very much contingent on our obedience. So you see that's paralleled with Israel's situation. She got the title deed to the land without condition, but her enjoyment of it is very much a function of her obedience. You see what's happening? So... Um, So what's happening today? <clears throat> if, um, if Satan can prove God to be a liar with reference to Israel, then your faith is in vain as well. So to me, that's at the heart of the conflict. Uh, it looks geopolitical, but it's really spiritual. 
You see these two phrases in verse 1, as he has had said and as he had promised. He also said things and promised things to Israel. If God fails to fulfill his promises to Israel, then why won't he fail to fulfill his promises to you and me? Can you see what's at stake? So it has really nothing to do with Israel and Hamas except that they're players in this magnificent spiritual theater. It really has to do with the integrity of God. Satan, the father of lies, wants to make God out to be a liar. Didn't he start doing that in Genesis chapter 3? Remember uh, when he said, uh, has God said? Surely he did not say. He started to cast aspersions on the integrity of God, the character of God. That's what's at stake in the Middle East. So for instance, if Satan could get rid of Israel one way or the other, whether it's through the Philistines, the Assyrians, the Nazis, uh, Hamas, it doesn't matter to Satan. If he can get even the United States, it doesn't matter. As long as he can get rid of Israel, then what's at stake? It has nothing to do with the Jews. It has to do with God's character. For crying out loud, God made an everlasting, unconditional covenant to them. If they're gone, forced into the sea, (laughs) then we could say, uh, we cannot say, as he has said, as he has promised. We have to doubt God with respect to our place in eternity. And then none of us can be eternally secure. Can you see what's at stake here? The father of lies wants to make the author of truth to look like a liar with respect to our salvation. Wants to shake our confidence in almighty God. One way to do it is to exterminate the Jews. Hence the rather, in my opinion, irrational contempt and hatred towards Jewish people. I say irrational because some is rational. Um, you don't have to like Jewish people. You would not, in my opinion, I wouldn't label you an anti-Semitic person if you didn't like Jews. It's okay. You may just not, not like our culture. It's okay. You don't like our food. You don't like our attitude. This is cool. No problem. I probably don't like you either. <laughs> this, this doesn't mean we're... We have a contempt for one another. We just say, I don't, can't relate to your culture. I just don't know your, your style. You know, I just, the way you do, your sense of humor, the way you dress, you know, all the foods you eat, I don't get, this is cool. But I'm talking about an irrational contempt to the extent that you want to obliterate a whole people group and that it be orchestra, orchestrated, not by extremists, but systematic. Uh, orchestration by duly appointed governments of, wow, this, this is, this shows me, ah, it can only be explained in spiritual terms. It's a Satan versus Savior kind of a thing. You see what I mean? So I'll go so far as to say the Christian who is no longer standing by Israel is no longer standing by God. Isn't that a dogmatic statement for me to say? But I sort of mean that. Because standing by Israel has nothing to do with the politics. It has to do with the fact that, God, you made promises to that people group. Uh, I'm standing by those so that you can be proven to be one who we can count on. and, And so that we can conclude, as he had said and as he had promised, so he has done. See, if... If we can't get to the last book of the Bible, Revelation, with Jews still intact, then God has lied. See, the last book of the Bible has Jews all through it. 144,000 to begin with, 12,000 from each of the tribes of Israel. If when we finish Genesis and go all the way through to Revelation, the Jews have been eradicated, driven into the sea, There is no Jewish state. There is no Jerusalem. There is no temple. All that's gone. As indicated, it must be in the book of Revelation. Then the author of the book of Revelation has lied. And we can't count on him for our salvation either. Can you see what's at stake? That's why there have been massive, in the last few days, worldwide protests against Israel. Over 50,000, they say, in London. 
are also Paris, also places in India and so on and so forth, uh, people taking up the Palestinian cause. So what do you, what's meant by the Palestinian cause? If what is meant is the civil rights of Palestinian people, I want to take up that cause, as we all should. If the humanity and worth of Palestinian people is what is meant by the Palestinian cause, I'm on that. I'm, I'm, I, I, I want to be included. If injustices directed by any people group against any other, this people group, uh, has to be confronted, I want to be part of that. If meeting the basic needs, humanitarian needs of Palestinian people is part of taking up the Palestinian cause, I'm in favor of that. If treating Palestinian people with dignity as folks created in the image of God is part of the Palestinian cause, count me in. But if by the Palestinian cause you mean uh, ceasing to support Israel but instead supporting Hamas, count me out. I don't want any part of that. And by the way, I'm not sure all the Palestinian people want that either. Israel gave up Gaza in 2005 under the Land for Peace Accords. They were pressured by the international community, not the least of which was our country, to give up land for peace because Palestinians said this will make for peace. Israel gave up Gaza in 2005 bodily, removing its own citizens from the area, bodily, kicking and screaming. It's like someone in our government, I mean, we squeak about eminent domain laws, you know, when you lose some of your property. What if our government said, uh, we're giving Alvin to the Canadians or something, I don't know what. And everyone living in Alvin, you got to move. Well, I'm not moving. Well, you're going to move one way or the other. And they send in the authority, they pull you out. That's what happened under land for peace, but there's been no peace because in 2007, Hamas forced its way in as the governing entity in Gaza. It is on our list of terror organizations, on England's list, on Canada's list, on Australia's list, should be on everyone's list. Now, if the outcry against Israel has been, you're denying us a Palestinian state, why don't you make Gaza the Palestinian state? You had since 2005, and millions of dollars from our country and others have been pumped in to build up the infrastructure, schools, hospitals, roadways. Well, why are the residents of Gaza without these amenities and so impoverished? Where is the money going? Well, I think we just found out. Each of the 40 tunnels cost in excess of a million dollars each to build. The 40 tunnels discovered by Israeli ground troops, very sophisticated. It's not two kids with a little pick and axe. Very sophisticated, concrete-supported tunnels, well-equipped electronically and with tranquilizing drugs. What would they use that for? That's interesting. All kinds of things, wide, where you can stand up, ventilated. Uh, Israel is couched as the ogre in their bombing. Well, all Hamas had to do is use some of this money to be to build concrete reinforced bomb shelters to protect its own people. Instead, they build tunnels so as to kidnap, accost, and murder Israeli civilians when they sleep at night. That's the purpose of the, of the, of the tunnels. So what's happening is this. I expect uh, Muslim people and others to be anti-Israel. I expect that. But when Christians start uh, taking up the Palestinian cause, wrong, the wrong Palestinian cause, I get nervous about that. But I'll tell you how it happens. Hamas knew when they started this um, current round of rocket attacks, they won't win. You can't defeat Israel. They can't defeat Israel militarily. The Israeli military probably is now rivaling ours. They're pretty strong. They have to be. Why? 
Who do we have to the north? Canada. They're our friends. Who do we have to the south? Mexico. Our friends. I know we have problems, but we're not under threat of invasion by Mexico, for crying out loud. It's an ally. Mm. Wow. I hate it when people have such strong feelings. But anyway... On one side, we have the Atlantic Ocean. On the other, we have the Pacific. We have some advance notice if we're being attacked. Go to Israel. There's your enemy in the third row. I mean, it's just that close. They don't have any. So their military has to be vigilant, skilled, ready to go. Hamas knows this. So why did they try... What they're doing now, they did it in 2008, they did it in 2012, these rocket attacks. Why? Because Hamas knows if they lose, though they will lose, they will win. How will they win? The propaganda war. And they're winning. I'll tell you how it happens. Imagine this on CNN. A split shot on one side of your screen is a screaming Palestinian woman carrying a dead child in her hands. You, you see it. If it doesn't affect you, something's wrong. You weep, you cry with this mom, and you weep over the loss of, of, of the life of a young child. On the other side of the screen is an Israeli politician in his high-backed leather chair, comfortable office, wearing a suit and a tie in an air-conditioned environment. You see the juxtaposition of these two visuals. Which one is going to affect your heart more? It's the picture of the lady with the dead child. You'll notice in the media reports, almost any of them, you'll notice almost no depictions of Israeli dead and wounded. Why? Israel doesn't do it. They don't exploit photographically their dead and wounded. So to give their side of the story, here's a politician. But Hamas will invite media (laughs) all over the place to capture on film this terrible, devastating loss of life. So what's happening, I'm not talking about liberals, what's happening even in the so-called conservative evangelical communities, Christians now, are drifting and, um, and uh, giving more credence and credibility to the, to the so-called Palestinian cause. Well, what is the Palestinian cause? Um, uh, there was a ceasefire for three days. It was ended Friday by... Hamas uh, firing more rockets. Interestingly, it was a ceasefire proposal offered by Israel and Egypt, of all places. Isn't that interesting? By Egypt. We'll talk about that in just a second. It was rejected by Hamas. What does Hamas want? Tell me if you think this is legitimate. Hamas wants the international community to pump in money so as to build it an international airport in Gaza an international harbor. They want the so-called Israeli blockade to be removed. They want all troops to be removed, and they refuse to disarm. Oh, I forgot this. And they also refuse to recognize Israel's right to exist. Do you think those are good terms? Would you sign on that dotted line? Anyway, th- that, those are the terms. So Hamas said, uh, forget it. And the world seems to be rallying on the side of Hamas. They're winning the propaganda war. I'll tell you what I mean. The next round of talks will put Hamas in a position of much greater bargaining strength than ever before. You no longer could see them as a fringe extremist group. Extremist group. You see them as the duly appointed government of an impoverished, oppressed people. It's David and Goliath. Israel's Goliath. Gaza is David. Goliath is unfairly beating up on, you know, David. We have to 
We root for the underdog. We root for David. So Hamas will have much more bargaining power. I mean, already our illustrious Secretary of State, he's calling for a cessation of rocket fire by Hamas and also for Israeli to practice more restraint. Israel to practice more restraint. Could you please tell me what that means, more restraint? I defy you to show me an army in the world, including ours, that have announced its intentions against its enemy beforehand. Israel texts, phones, and drops leaflets before an incursion in Gaza. It says to the population, we're coming to target terrorists. Put space between yourself and them. We're coming at such and such a time, and they target terrorists and and certain buildings, but you say, wait a second, look at the loss of civilian life. Wait a second. Have you ever heard of Hiroshima and Nagasaki? We count, in my opinion rightly, World War II veterans as heroes, do we not? To me, they're heroes. Our government made a very tough decision to drop the atomic bomb on Hiroshima and Nagasaki, Not to take life, but to shorten the war so as ultimately to save life. But how many Japanese innocent civilians were killed? You say, we grieve over it, but it was war. Well, how about a double standard? It's war in Israel. And who started it? Who started the rocket fire? Who started it? So when our world turns against Israel, I think we're forgetting Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Our government just decided to drop some bombs on ISIS in northern Iraq. You know about this? Uh, Our Air Force is fantastic, but it's possible some of those bombs may unintentionally take the life of innocent civilians. But we would say, though we grieve that, still... We must do that. There's just cause. We didn't start this. We have to help the persecuted religious groups in northern Iraq who are being slaughtered by ISIS. So so why all of a sudden is that thinking not relevant when it comes to Israel? On top of it, not one of the thousands of rockets thus fired by Hamas is really aiming at Israeli military installations. Do you know that? They're aimed at civilian communities. Where's the United Nations? Where's their sense of uproar and disgust over this? Why haven't they caused more damage? Iron Dome, 90% of the missiles are intercepted. Others fall in sparsely populated areas and then allow me just a departure into spirituality, I would say Almighty God is exercising some sovereignty in protecting the Israeli population for crying out loud. Where's the United Nations? So Hamas cries about civilian loss, but they fire on civilian communities and they fire from their own civilian communities. What do you do when rockets are stored in and fired from a mosque? though you want to protect the integrity of a religious site, don't you think the government's premier responsibility is the protection of its citizenry? What would we do if we were the recipient of rocket fire from Mexico? By the way, I'm not sure it's all that far-fetched because Hezbollah, um, there's some evidence of a South American presence by Hezbollah already. They know our border is Swiss cheese. I would not be surprised if we see some incursions on our southern border. But, but, but what would happen if there was rocket fire from Juarez into El Paso? Middle of the day, terrorizing American school children who have to hide under their desks. There'd be an outcry for a government, go get them, tiger. And what if in the process some innocent civilians perished? We would grieve, but we would say it's a necessary evil. We didn't precipitate this. We've just responded. What a double standard. 
when our Secretary of State tells Israel to exercise restraint, leaflets, telephone calls, text messages, what? How much more restraint? Well, people say, though Hamas started the rocket fire, it's Israel's oppression that have forced them to do so. Um, What do you mean oppression? Well, there's a cry for a Palestinian state, you know, a two-state solution, which will never be a solution. But if that's the real issue, why not make Gaza the Palestinian state? 2005, you got it. There's 1.8 million Palestinians in Gaza. That's the makings of a state, a country. Why don't you make it New Palestine? We and other countries poured in millions of dollars to build hospitals and schools. You could have your state. That's not the goal. Where has the money gone? I'm telling you, it's gone to tunnels and armament. But Hamas now has more bargaining power at the next round of talks. We will push them, uh, Israel, uh, into a two-state solution. By the way, the charter, proposed charter for the new Palestinian state has no room for Jews in it. Did you know that? So here's what I mean. If you go to Israel today, there are approximately 8 million residents And of the 8 million, 2.5 million Israeli citizens are Arabs. There's one Jewish state, one. It's not very big. It's the size of New Jersey. There are many Muslim-dominated countries. There's only one Jewish country. In that country, 2.5 million of the 8 million citizens are Arabs with full rights and privileges, mosques all over the place, churches, there's a Baha'i temple, and it's an Eastern religion. In uh, Haifa, there's Jehovah's Witnesses, there's Mormons, there's Russian Orthodox, Greek Orthodox, every kind of thing, all protected folks. But the charter for the new Palestinian state says it will be Jew-free. Where's the United Nations? Where's the uproar? Where's the sense of injustice? Here's a proposed Palestinian state based on the quintessence of racism, no Jews. Do you know in the Israeli Knesset, that's the equivalent of their Congress, there are Arab-Palestinian members who hate Israel. How did they get elected? By their constituency. There's two and a half million Arab citizens of Israel. They vote. Do you know a member of the Israeli Supreme Court is a Palestinian Arab who hates Israel. He has a protected right to hate Israel. It's a true democracy. We will go in September, Lord willing. We do not have to go undercover. If we wanted to, we won't. But if we wanted to, we could preach Jesus on any street corner. It's a protected right. What would be my chances of yours in a Muslim-dominated country? to freely propagate our faith. I remember years ago during Desert Storm, um, I was in a field artillery unit in the Army Reserves. Eight-inch howitzers, we call them. It's the biggest round the Army has. It can blow up stuff real good. And the commander told me, we're getting deployed to Saudi Arabia. I was the chaplain. He said, get our members ready. So we have meetings and just you get ready. Um, and then I was called into a meeting by my superior, a higher-ranking chaplain. And um, he was talking to us about religious and spiritual things. He said, while in Saudi Arabia, of course, everyone has to, uh, on, on your military uniform, you have different items, and they, they, a lot of them are silver, but you don't wear silver stuff in into the field because you can be spotted by someone who wants to shoot you. So so you wear what we call subdued insignia. So you go black instead of silver, so to speak. And you don't salute in in the field. (coughs) If a guy salutes a ranking officer, you you just told the sniper who to take out. 
shoot that major. You know, this kind of deal. So no salute, nothing like that. So we're getting briefed. And here's what he says. He said, your crosses, we wear silver crosses, two silver. There's a U.S. insignia right here. And there's two silver crosses on our lapels. So we would wear subdued insignia. But he said, when you leave the compound, you can't wear your crosses. Why not? Saudi Arabia, Muslim country. And I thought to myself, good night. We're going halfway around the world at personal sacrifice and risk. We may die. To defend a country. That was Saddam Hussein days. We didn't want him coming into Saudi Arabia. To defend a country, our so-called ally, that will not allow me to represent what I believe in. But you can go to Israel, stand on any street corner, build any church anywhere you want and have it as a protected right. When people say the two groups are moral equivalents, you don't know what you're talking about. No Jews in the new Palestinian state, but Arab Israelis have full rights and privileges anywhere in Israel today. Go there. One time we were on a tour, Jewish guide, Muslim driver. The Muslim driver got a back problem. He was taken to Hadassah Hospital where every Israeli in Jerusalem, Israeli citizen is taken. Muslim man received the best care. One time, a homicide bomber uh, detonated himself on Ben-Gurion Street, but didn't succeed in killing himself. He was taken to Hadassah Hospital, to the same hospital uh, receiving care with those whom he victimized. Can you please tell me what my chances are? if something like that happened in a, in a Muslim-dominated state. Now, you say, well, Stuart, you're talking about radical Islam. So I want to ask you this question. I wonder when we're going to stop wasting a word. Radical Islam. I'll tell you what I mean. Statistically, when you look at the proliferation of crimes against humanity, which seems to naturally emanate from the teachings of Islam, you cease seeing it as a radical brand of Islam and you start seeing it as a normative outgrowth of the teaching of Islam. To cut off people's heads, to kidnap uh, girls, to put, as in Mosul, northern Iraq, an N, sort of an, the Arabic equivalent of an N, on the doors of Christians, what does the N have to do with it? Followers of the one from Nazareth. That's what they're called. It's a compliment. But in that case, those residing behind the doors with an N on it have two choices. Convert, submit to Allah and Muhammad, the chief prophet, or die. When you continue to see Boko Haram, ISIS, Al-Qaeda, Hamas, Hezbollah, uh, you begin to say, I wonder if this is extreme or radical an outgrowth of this religion, or I wonder if it's the normative conclusion you come to in studying the Quran. For instance, the normative outcome from being a Bible student is to want to take and offer the gospel freely around the world, but not with a sword or a gun. When we go to Israel, we'll go with school supplies and candy to soften up the hearts of people. Jesus said to his followers, don't take a sword with you. He didn't mean don't have a means of self-defense. He was saying don't seek to spread the gospel through fleshly means and weaponry. So the logical outgrowth of the Bible is be ready to give an account for the hope that is in you. Be ready, but not to impose things. If you have a radical Christian who's imposing his belief system on someone, in truth, we could say, because it's such a statistical aberration, it is radical Christianity. But it is not radical Islam to do these things. It's normative. Jihad is jihad. Jihad means you're the infidel, you're the profane, you submit to Allah or you die. If there is a moderate uh, emanation of Islam, why don't we hear from the mosques around the world, even in our country, we have mosques now in every major city, including Baytown, Texas. Why don't we hear uh, an uproar against all of the uh, 
persecution done in the name of Allah to Christians in Sudan and Nigeria and many other places in the world? Why don't the mosques, we would stand up here and we would say what that hateful Christian did does not represent the teachings of Jesus Christ. Why don't we see so-called moderate Muslims from their mosques preach against what's going on? Instead, what happens is that Muslims dance and rejoice in the street. By the way, the so-called innocent citizens of Gaza did that very thing when we lost 3,000 at 9-11. They danced and rejoiced in the street. And Israel, who our country is turning against, in my opinion, Israel mourned and lamented the loss along with us. When you talk about why can't these two people groups just get along, when you put them on the same level of moral equivalence, you're missing it. Israel does not teach its kids to grow up to be suicide bombers, to take out innocent civilians. Golda Meir, a one-time president of prime minister of Israel, deceased, by the way, from Milwaukee of all places, She was asked one time, will there ever be peace? She said there will be peace when they love their children more than they hate us. Don't talk to me about the loss of innocent civilian life. Hamas is speaking out of both sides of its mouth, targeting Israeli civilians and then hiding behind its own. Israel will release over a thousand Palestinian prisoners to bring back one Israeli kidnapped soldier. Don't talk to me about the value of human life. There is no moral equivalence over there. So again, why is this all important for us as Christians? If if there are people who rally against Israel, by the way, there's a, you know, like the PCUSA, Presbyterian Church USA, they decided to boycott three major American companies who do business with Israel. You know about this? Motorola is one of them. I want to tell you how crazy this is. It just shows me not one of them has ever been to Israel. Because who do you think is employed in Israeli factories? Palestinians. If you go to me with, uh, with me to Israel, in any hotel we stay in, most of the workers are Palestinian Israelis. We'll stay in one hotel uh, in Jerusalem. The manager is a Muslim Palestinian. We become close friends. We try to minister uh, to this man. If if you do what the PCUSA wants us to do because they want to stand by Palestinians, they're actually going to end up hurting Palestinians. They, people are boycotting a place called Ahava. It's a cosmetics factory along the Dead Sea. They use Dead Sea cosmetics to, uh, um, ingredients to make stuff for your skin. Look, if you don't want to buy the products, that's fine. But if you're doing it, and they're saying Ahava is located in the West Bank, West Bank of the Jordan River. The West Bank was taken by Israel. Israel is occupying it. By the way, the West Bank is called Judea and Samaria. (laughs) Those are biblical places. Part of the title deed to those places was given by God way back here in Genesis. But okay, if you want to call it the West Bank, fine. So there's an Ahava factory. If you go with me to the Ahava factory, and Lord willing, we'll we'll go there, folks. most of the people working there are Palestinian people who live in the area and are gainfully employed. So there's a whole new movement now called the BDS movement, Boycott, Divest, and Separate from Israel. It's really picking up steam on college campuses because kids who should be getting an education have nothing better to do but find some cause to differentiate themselves from their parents' value system. So now the church has historically stood by Israel. I know, say these kids who don't know what they're doing, I know now we will, we will go against Israel. Now we'll distinguish ourselves from our parents' value system. That's kind of what's happening. So, so the BDS movement is crazy. It's nuts. The ones being penalized are Arab Palestinian workers who are employed all through the land, all through Israel. If you go there with me, you will, you will, you will see it. Um, so what's really happening? It really has nothing to do with Israel. It's a world in rebellion against God. Israel's just one manifestation of it. It's a world in rebellion against God. Look, my wife and I were going to Oregon the last few weeks. So I was checking out online 
one of these like Priceline things or Travelocity. You know, you try to get your cheap whatever flights, hotels. So it was a little video snippet. I don't remember which one. I wish I did because I would like to indict it, but I can't remember. It was a little video snippet of two guys, and they're going to check into a hotel for a weekend away, and they're getting a good room rate through one of these services. One guy says to his partner, getting a good night's sleep is the most important thing. The other guy says, not to me. The other guy says, oh, yes, it is, getting a good night's sleep. The other guy says, well, um, unfortunate me. The implication was that these two guys are getting off for a romantic weekend together. But one just wants to sleep and the other wants to have an activity. I'm watching this thing. I'm saying, oh, God, we have crossed the line. One of the guys in our last class told me he was watching a House Hunters episode. Two guys, you know, they're getting married. They're engaged. They're getting married and they are uh, um, producing a child through laboratory, whatever. They're getting a lady to help them produce a, a child. I'm not in favor of persecuting, demeaning, putting down anyone. A person's a person. But these values tell me we've crossed a line and I don't think there's a point of return anymore. When the President of the United States stakes out his ground in favor of same-gender marriage, when he takes it upon himself to redefine God's idea of marriage, we have crossed the line. Israel is just a symptom of it. But put your finger on any part of the map. How about Ukraine border with Russia? How about North Africa? How about anywhere in the world? So what's happening? Um, Social media is affecting our younger people, not critical thinking. You know, what did someone say? You can, if you tell a lie frequently enough, it becomes truth. I'm, I'm sure I messed that up. Something like that. So here's what happened with social media. It'll fly around the world, particularly amongst younger people, quickly. But they no longer do critical thinking. They don't check out the facts, and they surely don't uh, subject what's on social media to the biblical perspective. So you're getting increasing numbers of young people who are changing their allegiance entirely. It's no longer standing by Israel. It's taking up the oppressed Palestinian uh, cause. It's quite an interesting kind of a thing. So social media can start whole movements and revolution. It started the, uh, the Muslim Brotherhood um, in uh, Egypt. It started the, uh, what was that deal in New York? Not a sit-in. Oh, Occupy Wall Street. It was all started on social media. My point is, uh, what we're seeing is a world rebelling against the biblical perspective. And God is letting us see what it looks like. It is not a pretty picture. So what are we supposed to do? Don't be compromised. Make sure you know what the Bible teaches and make sure you stick to it. Even though you fall into disfavor with people, that's going to increasingly happen to us. We don't know persecution, the likes of which our fellows are experiencing. But we'll know more of it, it seems to me, in the in the days ahead. So what do we do? Compromise? 60% of college-age Christian students indicated in a poll they have no problem with cohabitation, living together. 60%. That's a problem, folks, because that's not God's way. That is not God's way. You do not try each other on for size and then decide on whether you'll be committed. You commit irreversibly. 60% of our kids think living together is not a problem. Well, what about the other kids if 60% of our kids? So I'm telling you, I think what we're seeing is a world in rebellion. What does that mean? A couple things. Remember the sovereignty of God. He knows. He's not been taken by surprise. He's in control. And second, if you're going to be a radical anything, be a radical biblicist. 
be someone who says, God said it, I believe it, that settles it. Doesn't that pastor tell us to, isn't that, isn't that the epithet he uses? God said it, I believe it, that settles it. Stick to the biblical perspective more than ever before. It's a world in rebellion against it. Don't be part of it. All right, folks. Um, Lord willing, we'll actually do Genesis 21 next week. And uh, it's really good for me because I'm prepared. I, I have it. <coughs> and uh, who knows? There may be something else that comes up next week. These things are happening in our day. It's a very unsettling uh, um, kind of a day. I was studying for Wednesday night a verse that you all know, Romans eight twenty eight. God uses all things for the good, even these terrible things. Yes, sir. One quick question, sure. You mentioned the 144,000. Oh, yeah. Why was Dan omitted? Oh, man, that's a great question. I don't know the answer. <laughs> that's a really good question. He's not listed there, is he? I don't know what the answer is to that one. I'll try to find out, or I'll make something up. Yeah. What else is new? What else is new? Well, let me pray for my brother Chuck. No, no. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for everything. You're the most high God, high and lifted up, seated on the throne, seeing the end from the beginning. And we know you. And we belong to you. Oh, God, help us not to cower, but to be salt and light, representing the biblical perspective on things now more than ever. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you all. Hey, look, you have plenty of time to go look at the tables. Plenty of time.